This is our Suburb Trends Report for November 2023. We'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. And in this episode, we'll be discussing a key trend that Kent is seeing with inventory creeping back towards what he would consider normal. And there are a number of areas where that could bring considerable risk. Welcome to the Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to look at what's happening with inventory levels and whether there are any danger zones across the country, I think particularly in tree and sea change areas. So Kent, can you kick us off by briefly explaining how you've tackled this challenge? Yes, what I've done is I've looked at areas where, or statistical area threes, I'll just say SA3s because it's easier for me to say now. So I've looked at SA3s where we've seen a consistent rise in listings over the last few months. So rather than jumping at shadows, we've looked at that consistent change. The what I did is I filtered out those locations that had lower inventory levels and just focused on stuff that was five months and higher. And what we've seen is most of these areas have kind of come off a base of you know, sub three, like most markets around the country. Um, go back a few years, you know, four and five were normal. Um, what we're seeing now is a number of locations around the country uh, where listings are rising, but uh, average sales volumes are going the other way. And as a result, we're starting to see some inventory levels creep well and truly above five, six, seven months and higher. And some of these locations are fairly dreamy locations. So I just want to just remind listeners, anybody who hasn't listened to your explanation of inventory levels yep. versus stock levels versus listing levels, just so we can sort of clarify exactly what we're talking about here. Um, and then we're going to get into this juiciness because this is really, it's going to challenge, uh, I'm sure, a lot of our thinking. <laughs> yes. Um, so inventory level is a fairly standard metric used in North America. So typically, if you've got 100 listings on average and you've got 10 properties that sell per month on average, 100 divided by 10, 10 months of stock. If you've got 20 properties that sell per month, 100 divided by 20, five months. So typically, you've got two metrics that are important. You've got the absolute current measure of inventory, whether that's below three, it gets pretty tight. That sums up pretty much the entire country. In most markets, we've seen most suburbs, we've seen over the last couple of years we've all kind of been sub four months with the exception of a few of these house of land areas so i just want to push the house of land areas out so typically what we're seeing is this extraordinarily tight level of inventory which has been a fairly common metric in the us as well coincidentally what's happening now is we're seeing inventory levels rise and so their current levels are starting in some of these markets that we'll talk about in a moment and they're climbing up above the six months mark so I'd kind of used to say five months was around the equilibrium or balanced market. I probably pushed that down to maybe four because we've been at such a low level for so long. So if you make the assumption, if you hold the assumption that that four months is a balanced market, 
Uh, anything above that starts to see downward pressure and price. But you've also got another metric, which is what the trend is. So effectively, you know, if, if things are changing rapidly in terms of inventory levels building, you've got not only the current level of inventory, e.g. six or seven or eight or nine months of stock, but you've also then got the, the trend that's behind it. And, and typically, this is a measure of supply and demand. It's as simple as that. And if you have no other, the theory is if you have no other property list for sale, how long would it take at current levels of, of demand to clear out all of the inventory that's on the shelves? And do you think it's a bit of a tipping point, Kent, where uh, the buyer goes, well, I've got a bit of choice on the market, maybe it's four or five months, but not heaps of choice. But once it gets sort of six, seven, they're like, well, there's no urgency to buy here. I can't see things, you know, fall, you know, quickly going off the shelves. I'll be really patient for something that's good. And then, you know, especially particularly get this sort of downward spiraling effect where, you know, potentially people do want to sell because they're like, oh no, prices are falling. Maybe I need to get out before it gets worse. And, you know, you start to see those real, you know, big price drops that, you know, that people have been thinking is going to happen to the Australian property market for years. But, you know, reality is we could be, you know, the eye of the storm for some of these locations that inventory is really jumping up. Um, I think it's the flip side of the same FOMO coin. So it's, you know, the opposite of what we've seen for years now. We've all gotten used to you know, markets that have been booming and growing at a great rate of knots. Um, I think if they go down at those same rate of knots, there'll be, be some panic. Um, I, I guess the for me, the issue more is that, um, well, this is my theory. My theory is that these areas have been so tight for so long that they'll hit a point, a price point where people will say this is really good buying and stem that downward flow. Whereas with the upwards price, you've kind of been capped. The ceiling's been more affordability. Borrowing capacity has been the cap on the upwards. I think the the floor on the bottom, woods, uh, I made that word up, is um, effectively you hit that magic price where it does appear to be exceptional value whether that just be for owner occupied whether it be for a you know, retiree looking to downsize and and there's sufficient margin between what they're selling for in sydney or other and moving to a noosa for example um or an investor in some of these locations we've got listed down have or have been for a very very long time listed as investor hotspots and um so that, that uh-huh. a lot of them a lot of them have good yields so, you know, a, a downward price uh, just makes those yields look better, especially where the rental market's healthy. Yeah. You know, have you ever been to the fish markets and watched a, watched an auction for fish? Oh, down at uh, the Sydney. Have they redeveloped that yet? The Sydney fish markets? Not yet. Not but yet. No, that's another topic for another conversation. No, a lot of people say a Dutch auction, they use the term incorrectly. So a Dutch auction is like when lots of people are fighting over a property and it's private treaty and, and becomes a Dutch auction, right? It's not actually a Dutch auction. Apparently a Dutch auction is where this price starts high and then just, just there's like a dial and it just gets down and keeps going down and, and then basically people press the buzzer when they think, oh, shit, that's really good value. I don't, I don't want to let it go any lower because someone else will buy it. So it's the opposite to, like you say, it's opposite to FOMO. It's, I don't know if there's a, an acronym for it. But so that's how fish is apparently sold at the fish markets. And I think that's maybe how the fresh produce markets work. I'm not, not an expert. Don't get up early enough in the morning, really. But um, so that's really like the catching a falling knife thing. You know, that, that's when, thing, when the markets really slide at a great rate. Now, we haven't really seen that happen 
um, maybe in mining areas, but even so, I don't think at any point anyone said, yes, that's great value. <laughs> um, so are there... I want to know, are the at-risk areas the usual suspects? You know, you mentioned house and land um, developments, new house land developments. You've mentioned you've taken them out of the mix because they are usual suspects. Or are they coastal areas like Byron Bay? Because, I mean, that that's a usual suspect because it's far enough away from a capitalist city and it does have very large fluctuations. Or what are the surprises in the mix? Yeah, what I've done is I've... I started out with a list of 43. I thought, we won't cover all of those today, so I'll isolate the really interesting ones. No. I picked out the ones that I've always eyeballed, you know, the ones that I uh, would look online as a great spot to retire, et cetera. Um, so they're the sea change, tree change locations that I'm making the assumption here that they ran very hot. Maybe uh, there was a little bit of overheating as a result of that Exodus, the COVID exodus. So that's my theory. Uh, mm-hmm. When I list, I'll list them all down, and we'll pull, we'll come back and and pull them apart. So the first right. one's good old Noosa, and so I've listed them in price. Um, so Noosa's up top of the list, followed by Noosa Hinterland, and then Richmond Valley Coastal. We all know that contains good old Byron Bay, Queen Beanne. Now that's been a that's been one of those hotspots that I've picked many times um, for the for investors. So Queen Beanne's there, Coffs Harbour's there. Uh, Great Lakes. I'm looking up because I'm looking at my list behind the camera here, so that's yeah, probably see my eyes darting around. Um, Great Lakes, Sunshine Coast hinterland, Cleveland Stradbroke. Stradbroke. That's uh, that Redland Bay area down south of Brisbane or east. Um, Shoalhaven, Orange, Bathurst, and the last one on the list is Hobart Northwest. So that's uh, ranging from uh, an SA3 asking price median of 1.372 down to 585 being the Hobart Northwest one. So it kind of gives you a list. Now, if you go online and look at listings in any of these locations, and you, especially if you order them from price high to low, you will see amazing views and vistas and beautiful houses. I mean, quite stunning. So you know, all of these locations can can offer up something amazing for you to look at. If you were, you know, if you were looking to, to to downsize, if you're looking to sell up in Sydney, which is still a pretty hot market, um, and look at an area that's suddenly offering up choice and offering up some, I'm going to use air quotes, bargains. Yeah, is it a good time? I think that's a good question because you you mentioned earlier, is this are these falling? How far have they got to fall? Uh, what are the risks? But um, I think by and large, I've been caught out before where uh, I thought, oh, remember Sydney went through a couple of downturns in the unit market in the last 25 years. Or, you know, and inventory level built up and then click your fingers and they came down again because you know, investors flooded in, etc. The question I've got is, will the same thing happen here? The, uh, what I'm not confident confident about is the fact that they're a little bit remote. So talking about the Sydney unit market 15, 20 years ago, a little bit different to talking about Noosa Hinterland. Mm. So I guess, um, I mean, it's a real worry though, is is if you're owning a property in these areas, maybe you bought in the last couple of years and, you know, if you do need to return to the city, well, you're selling in a market that's completely different from under-supplied to over-supplied. Um, you know, do you think that a lot of people are... Um, you know, the reason price falls haven't been as great is people just can't justify selling, right? Like, you know, I know I want to sell. I know it's not worth what the market, what I want for it, but I'm just going to hold on and just, and so basically people that, 
you know, because the price falls haven't been that significant yet. But do you think there's a tipping point when everyone says, actually, I can't hold on anymore. I can't service the mortgage. I, I need to get back to the city for work. I just need to get out. And that will start to lead to much lower prices. Do you think it's, you know, surprisingly, you know, with that much inventory, 10, 11, 12 months of inventory, you'd expect much bigger price falls, but markets seem to be holding up. They've been pretty good, but the, the price falls here, we're talking at, you know, say Noosa, for example, the last 12 months is minus 8%. So that's just the annualized. So uh, 8%, but we've seen a fairly significant spike in inventory in the last couple of months. So the question I have here uh, is that, is it possible that the worst might be ahead for these locations because of that inventory spike at the same time as the threat of interest rates going up again? I was I wanted to hold back on making any of these assessments or statements because of the possibility the interest rates had flatlined or maybe coming down again. But if they're going to go the other way, that borrowing capacity issue just becomes a major constraint to any further price growth. So um, the reasons behind this, you know, I can't put my finger on the motivations for a lot of the people who bought and sold or who are likely to sell, but the numbers tell me here we've got areas that have not seen levels of inventory level, you know, inventory above seven or eight in years, in, in years. And this is a great example where there was a time when Noosa was a, a market that did have fairly significant cyclical variation. Um, now, I made the incorrect theory. Well, I made the I made the statement. I think on this show um, that that was gone from the market because of the work from home movement. You know, because a lot of the markets that were holiday home, or, you know, the second home markets were the ones that always had the greater variation in a downturn. Uh, another example would be um, uh, up at Nelson Bay. You know, a lot of holiday homes, so people go and buy and push up prices during the holiday seasons and then things would get tough and they'd all flog their holiday homes. Noosa was a similar thing. Noosa would have a bit of a significant downturn in the down period. Uh, but I made the assumption that, I made the statement that I thought that that was going to um, disappear as a result of work from home. I may have, I may have been wrong, you know, um, that these this, this variation looks significant. We interviewed Eliza Owen a few weeks back and she did say that there's some, um, it's not it's significant enough that, that there's been a U-turn in a lot of these sea and tree change areas. So that short-term sell within, say, two years, uh, so there's the post-lockdown post sea and tree change and then quite a high proportion of uh, resales within two years. So there's definitely lessons to be learnt there and the thing is though and it is interesting because i guess we you know we look at COVID and we think oh how does how has that made permanent changes to our lives um how has it accelerated change that was always going to happen but might have taken a decade versus how has it created behavioral change in people that isn't sustainable isn't going to be permanent permanent such as that demand for tree and sea and tree change because we you know we get bored with our city hamster wheel lives and we all yearn for a simpler life we go and get that simpler life and it's not quite what it was cut out to be or the work from home didn't materialize long term etc cetera, etc cetera. so so it's not unexpected really um but i guess the further you go from a capital city right the more vulnerable prices are 
And I would think that that's, or, or certainly once, I guess the further away you get from a, a capital city, the more likely there could be a U-turn if you are dealing with people who still have to work. And of course, that allows um, more vulnerability around that price. So uh, are we seeing that? Are we seeing that that's sort of beyond the two-hour commute? Yes. Is, is that yeah. sort of noticeable here? It, it is. Like there's a couple of exceptions in this list. You've got uh, Hobart Northwest, so not a far commute, but- by and large, there's you know, it's a bit like Brisbane. Anyone, any anyone living outside of 10k out of Brisbane, <laughs> they think you're living in the in another country. Um, so you've got Cleveland Stradbroke, which includes Redland Bay, um, which is you know, it's a solid 45, 50 minute drive. Um, but and then Hobart Northwest, not as far a drive, um, but they're still out of burbs. So there are a couple of SA3s in here that I've picked that are. Out of burps, um, but the but the rest of these or Queen Bean's in there as well, which is you know out of burps, out of burps of Canberra and Maitland's in here as well. I mean, yeah, I took Maitland out because there's a fairly big proportion of new house of land there in that mix. New housing, yeah, yeah. So I moved, I removed it because they just it's skewing the data and it's so hard to measure. Um, but yeah, the ones that I've left in it as my focus point were all these beautiful locations, you know that that. The emotional purchase did, had a role to play. Well, I mean, I guess it's a it's a double uh, risk, right? You're a a little bit further away from the city, um, and b you're getting a lot of new housing stock, right? Like, so you've already got a lot of inventory, a lot of listings on the market. So as a buyer, you've got lots of choice, and then you could buy old or you could buy new. Um, and as a buyer, you're like, well, there's no rush, right? I I don't have to buy because everything's sitting on the market, and I'm going to make lowball offers, and I think. You know, maybe the market isn't willing to meet those low wall offers um, because they're able to hold on. Um, investors, but I, I think at some point people have to meet the market, you know, generally their situations. And then prices, you know, that one person who couldn't hold on had to take that offer for 700 because that's the best they had. And even though they wanted 800 and then goes, well, everyone, that sold for 700. Why would I want to pay more than that? And you start to get this fire sale repricing of the market. I'm not sort of saying doomsday, but this is what happens in oversupply. Like unless supply really kicks up, you don't get those real buyer conditions where everyone thought would happen in COVID. Everyone thought the mortgage cliff would create these sort of situations. Um, but I, 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 when I look at these imagery numbers, you know, 10, 12 months of imagery in, in particularly in these high priced, you know, sister cities to the capital cities. I think that's a, it's a real concern. Um, potentially a buying opportunity if you're wanting to make that lifestyle shift down there. Um, Maybe you can be patient and really wait for that right property, which you may not have the option to do that the last couple of years. So sell at a better price in the city, and you know. But where where really concerns you the most, can in these in this list, you've obviously got massive, you know, outback Queensland and things like that. But you know, on the higher end price, what what's really do you think? Is it Noosa that make, looks the worst, or what do you think? It's the suburbs within these regions where we're getting to very very high uh, price income. Um, ratio. So effectively, if you look at, I've just got another list here where I've sorted out based on uh, buyer affordability or, or how many years of household income does it take to cover uh, the the median asking price. And yeah, you're talking at, um, say, I'll pick on um, the first one there is Byron Bay. Now, Byron Bay is 28 years of household income. Now, yes, there are some high income people captured in that, but yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag and still, you know, so there's, there's, it's, it's a very spread different distribution of income there. But 
forget about that for a moment. And then the next one down there is Noosa Heads, and we're talking 17 years. And then we're talking uh, Sussex Inlet. We're talking um, 16 years, et cetera. So we've got a lot of these areas are pretty much the bulk of the suburbs in these areas are talking 10 year plus. So on any national index of measure of affordability, um, once you get above 10, you're, you're, you're in the red zone, not not affordable. I was about to say, what's our benchmark? Yeah, well, well, on global standards, I've heard as low as seven years is the normal. So Right. So, and this is this is basically where areas become unaffordable. For first-time buyers and upgraders, but I think that, you know, these areas will only continue if they've got a lot of downsizer or cashed up um, money coming in, whereas the last few years they've been pumped up because A, they've been buying and B, the younger family, the high-income people have been buying as well and they had much bigger borrowing capacities there. So they really can't buy in these locations because the capacity is not there and they don't want to. But also downsizers have a double whammy here because they often can afford to spend more on their housing, but they don't contribute to income. <laughs> like they don't, you know, they've got lower incomes. So it's a bit of a double whammy there. It is. Tweed Heads is a doozy um, because you've got a very, very low, the suburb of Tweed Heads or Tweed Heads South, you've got a really low household income and you've got some pretty high-priced properties, so depending on what sells at the time. Um, so because you've got so many retirees in there. So the retiree market throws things out. Um, the other one is the rental market. I know we're not talking about it today, but you know, that rental cohort um, is a lower than average household income. So when you're doing these kind of rental affordability measures, uh, they're always grossly understated when you use the household uh, average income in most cases. So um, so yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating scenario here, but I still hold the theory that there's going to be a bit of a flaw in this because a lot of these areas are so attractive that when they start to offer up good buying, they'll get a lot of attention, especially these C and three chain spots. One of the things that I'm looking at this list and, you know, uh, listening, I guess I worry about the listeners. Listeners can't hear this, see this list. So, um, but Liverpool, right, have gone from six months to, to 11 months of inventory, right? Um, and their median price is 1.3 million, right? Now, 1.3 million is, is tough. That's really hard to, because if that's a lot of first-time buyers who haven't got a lot of intergenerational wealth, and we haven't spoken about that a lot on the podcast, but I believe that's one of the strongest reasons why the market's held up over the last 12 months is the money that's coming down from parents and grandparents. Um, and in those areas, you might assume that maybe there's not a lot. Of, and so the borrowing capacities in those areas would have fallen 30, 40%, right? And potentially more, you might have unemployment, you might have, you know, young families as well that is reducing incomes. Uh, and prices have only fallen 6%, but now inventory is really kicking up. So you could say that, do you think that's a real worry tent where you've got, you know, inventory really kicking on and it's an area where it's got a really expensive price? Yes, that's that would be a biggie. Because, I mean, th- these are areas that, that, you know, I can't fathom how a lot of these markets got to the million dollar point. But um, with that, are you just looking at housing data here or housing just houses, total not or dwellings? Just, 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 just houses, houses yeah. yes. Um, and there was a lot of speculation around Liverpool the last few years with the airport, the uh, airtropolis or whatever you've called it. So, you know, the question is, how, what did that speculation create a little bit of overheating? Particularly under, you know, 2% interest rates, uh, a lot of people moving to those areas. 
um, could borrow six, seven times their income. Now they can interest rates are six percent. Now they can borrow four, four, four and a half times their income. Um, now inventory is you know really kicking up. You know, six months of choice now to ten months of choice. Maybe people are holding on right, and uh, you know then you're going to start. So you could see this pocket of Sydney potentially getting. A real, not a, buy, a complete buyer's market, and then other parts of Sydney under one, two, three months of inventory. Um, do you think that's what's basically playing out, Ken? Uh, it's, it's a slow-moving thing where markets. Yeah, historically, um, I'm going right back to the 90s when I was in the mortgage insurance space. The southwest of Sydney was always our red zone. It was always our worry. Um, so when things got tough, it was where we paid um, probably the largest portion of claims in the country i don't you know it seems that that may not have changed it was just a, a little bit of a hiatus so and i you know i've scanned through the list and, and liverpool and northwest hobart were the only two really that are within a major city um we talked about a few that are close to a major city um handful uh maitland and well mainly you didn't put on the list but um the uh, what do you call it stradbroke area um, most of them are C and Treetage areas. Most of them are expensive because basically, I think you've made a note in our notes here that those in the list with the area medians of seven fifty and above have been hit harder. Correct. They've they've done the big price adjustments. Yes. But at the same time, when you look at capital city prices, certainly I'm looking at Sydney prices, for instance, we've had a rebound this year, and the the upper the the top quartile has done better than everything in fact done better than the rest of the country so you know it's sort of and this is this is where uh, you know we're sort of entering back into almost normal territory now where not everything does the same thing you know 2021 the whole market seemed to perform the same way regionals outperformed capitals other than that everything everything was going up yeah and anyone could be an expert anyone could yeah and that's the danger right now we've got more of this this odd anomaly you know, sort of behaviour going on um, that causes us to stop and actually look at it and say, okay, well, let's let's look at why some. Or obviously, maybe this is should be called the heat map, the hotspot map, where areas where prices have overshot the mark by the sounds of it. Overheated map. It's the overheat map. Yeah, and and, and you know, it would it have happened if we didn't have the cost of living crisis at the same time, obviously, that correlated uh, with the interest rate rises. But, you know, I think pe- people borrowed, you know, money was almost free, uh, so people could borrow very, very heavily. And, you know, I, I the question I've got there, I'm showing my age, the old Henderson Poverty Index and, you know, the buffers, were they adequate? You know, did, did people lie a little bit on their mortgage apps or did, you know, or were the systems and calculators inadequate? Yeah, but there's also another question. I mean, because, yes, that could be that, but it also, you know, the vast majority of these areas that are showing this increase in inventory are these lovely, desirable sea and tree change areas. So is it more around that, okay, a lot of these people potentially have bought in recent times because they are the the city city migrants Um and that's changing behaviour as well, and potentially they're they're having more of an impact because of that. So it's hard to tease all that out. I, I can only myself, you know, when I when I was filming the show relocation, relocation, and location, location, location back, we started filming two thousand ten. We filmed right through to two thousand fourteen. So in that period of time, certainly the two thousand thirteen and fourteen, the market 
turned. Certainly it turned in Sydney first and then it started turning in Melbourne and we found it very, very different market conditions to what we were experiencing uh, the first couple of years of the show. But those regional areas, so the and, and I'm including the northern, the northern beaches of Sydney here as a regional market because that was very much behaved like a sea change market back then. Byron Bay, those areas, Cairns, even Hobart, these were areas that people would always love to go to holiday in and would love to have dream of living in. But we were post-GFC. You know, this is a period of time where everyone had offloaded their, were trying to offload their their holiday homes and were still trying to offload them years later. You know, Byron Bay, certainly we did, we filmed a lot up there. We, we filmed in the um, Sunshine Coast. It filmed up in the, you know, Cairns area. There were houses being sold for less than replacement value. You know, people were taking huge hits on on the sale of property. And these some of these properties have been sitting on the market for years. And that, to me, seemed like a particularly tough market, but on the, ba- the back end of the GFC. But I, I often wondered, how long does it take to sell property, expensive property in regional Australia, you know? And are we returning back to those times? Well, I, I think we may be because you know, just, you're not you're not going to be selling too many of these properties to locals because they've detached themselves from the local market. Yes, there are a handful of yet too expensive, so they're very dependent on the retiree downsizer. And and that, so so what might save them though? Yes, yeah, so there's enough of them though. There's a, a whole a very large proportion of people who been looking at these markets that couldn't find what they wanted. There was nothing available. So I, I think there's going to be a little bit of a safety net in there because they, they, they still have all that, all that. They're still attractive. They're beautiful to look at and they're serving up some quality properties now. I think what's um, interesting is that Byron um, you know, just released a 60-day cap with Airbnb, right? So you know, yes, you've got the cashed up downsizer, but you've got the high-income uh, family that lives in the city that wants a pad um that they can use you know weekends etc um and they may have said well i could make that work because i'll airbnb at six months or nine months i'll use it three months um and uh so it's really almost like a second home slash holiday home for them but if you've got all these locations that have got rental crisis then they also bring in short-term caps then that person says i don't actually want to I can't afford to hold a holiday home or a second home in these locations because I'm not going to make enough money to cover the mortgage at 6%. So then you wipe out the the CT range, the high-income investor into these areas, and you really down to the soul is that cashed-up downsizer. And um, do they then, in the past, thought maybe the kids would follow them to those locations, but the kids are like, well, no, we have to stay close to the city now because you know hybrid work, remote work is not a thing like it was. Um and maybe the parents don't make them, you know, the grandparents don't make the move. So, yeah, I think it's quite concerning, particularly when, you know, listings um, increase that who's going to buy these things if, if, if um, you know, more and more choice comes on the market. Well, I would argue that there's a very large proportion of these, specifically those that are, say, below 500K, that if they drop a little bit further, they're already offering pretty decent yields for houses. So there's a, a lot of investors out there that are actively always looking for the under 500k house. So I think that's the second opportunity. Yeah, they're, de- they're desperate to buy houses and they're desperate to keep to a budget. And and so as long as it ticks the yield box, a lot of them jump in. Yeah, the investor sort of uh, high yield 
uh, buyer's agent, right? And they, they put it all over LinkedIn, all over the different channels, right? Um, I'd love to say, you know, one of their metrics is, well, how many, much is inventory is in that location, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Because, um, I mean, what's an easy way for people to figure out how much inventory is in the market they want to buy? Like, what do you, you know, accessing free data, Kent, I mean, not everyone's got access to RP data and all the portals and but what do you reckon an easy way for someone to do it? Do you reckon there is a, is a way to do it? Um, you just got to work out how many properties are selling on average uh, and, and come up with that. So that's a projection because you don't know exactly the sold count uh, until a month or two later. So if you look at the sales history and you come up with an average, you can do that visually pretty quickly. So you can come up with, okay, what's selling in that suburb? And then you look at how many listings there are currently. There you go. That'll give you the current inventory. That's just for the suburb. I don't, I don't like to do it just at the suburb level because you can jump at shadows. But you could, though, if you had a concern, you could bring up the New South Wales Land Registry um, site and then bring up all the sales over the last, I'm not sure how far it goes back, actually, uh, maybe last one or two years, and then see how many, what's roughly how many houses are selling per month. And then you could go online, look at the portals, even though it's not all listings, right? But you could look at the portals and then say, actually, well, you know, 15 hours of selling a month and there's 60 on the market. Well, I've got an issue, right? Um, well, that's only four months of inventory. So I think the, the issue comes, you know, this, the issue really is, I think, now these six and sevens and higher and, and growing, you know, where we're seeing sales volumes dropping month on month on month by about 5% in many of these areas at the same time as listings going the other way at a similar rate. Can you explain that a bit more, Ken? Because that's actually another point, right? Not only is... There are a lot of listings, uh, inventory building, but we're selling less of them. Um, like we're actually lesser transacting, like at the same time as more stocks building. So, you know, things are just getting fatter and fatter rather than cutting down. Yeah. So we're looking at uh, my C and tree change. I'm saying that slowly list that we mentioned across that, the average there was minus 6% over the last three months. So the typical monthly delta, the monthly change in sales volume was a, a drop of 6% month on month on month. So a significant fall in sales. Now, there is there are some assumptions that need to hold there because I can't see what sells until it sells. So there's a bit of a, a big oogity boogity that goes into projecting what it's going to be this month. Um, but with listings, it's a bit better because you can effectively, what I do with there is I've grouped together all the suburbs per SA3 in an REA search. And then what I do is before I do my final calculation, when I do all the shortlisting, I go and do a current house listings count. So those counts that you see there on that list and the listeners have to trust that we've got a list in front of us, they're actually from yesterday doing a count real time. So the, the listings counts are real time and they have been going up as well. And they're pretty much going up up at a very similar rate to the sales volumes are going down, which is leading to this fairly significant jump. I mean, we keep saying C and tree change. I don't know what orange is. Is that like a... I'm calling that a tree change. There ain't no C. There ain't there, no C at orange. You reckon maybe it's just a winery change. You can't call wineries trees, but though. beautiful, um, beautiful quality houses. So you, 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 you're you getting... And a lovely, lovely town. Beautiful vistas, high-quality houses, some good employment. So, so yeah, it, Orange has been the poster child for a lot of uh, investors and advisors for years, and it's all the metrics have held up. So, yeah, those who have picked out Orange in the last 10 years have done good things for their clients. There's no question it's been a 
golden child. Um, it's just going through a bit so of that's, a. That's gone from six months to nine months of listings. So in it's a out of all this list of thirty odd, that's the fourth largest or the fifth largest big jump in listings as a percentage, um, together with Liverpool and you know the Great Lakes and um, Yass. Um, you know when people saw it said the winter supply. Was you know listings have really jumped up you know two months ago I was like I don't think that's going to stick around I think people are just selling earlier this year than they they would have they're trying to front run the market right and that's ended up what happening I think listings have almost just got back to trend if not below but when you look at somewhere like Orange it's gone up forty five percent in the last you know month but it, its price has only dropped by one percent so it's it's you know it's it the question is are people are pe- people holding on to your point earlier. Are people saying no, no, no? Uh, I'm just going to keep holding, and that they're not meeting the market. So there's, you know, that's what I what appears to me. It comes back to motivation for selling, and if it is the U-term type by a type seller, they've only been in that market a short period of time, and they're going to hightail out of there. They've got a very different motivation than um, somebody who's selling their acreage or their home because they're ready to downsize or whatever or upgrade. Um, and, you know, the country areas, you know, typically have taken longer. Their days on markets in country areas has typically been longer than in cities. That, that's a normal that's a norm. normal sort of expectation. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, so therefore, you know, if we, if we knew what the cohort was that was selling, it could just be going back to things as usual, things as normal, or it could be that you've got a bunch of people with a different motivation. And also if anyone has gone and, paid overs to do this, their tree change, realise it's not working for them, got to sell, going back to the city. If they see the Sydney prices for arguments, like if they've come from Sydney, if they're seeing Sydney prices on the rise and they're seeing prices where they're selling either flatlining or on or falling, they've got very different decisions to make in terms of opportunity costs, et cetera, et cetera, um, than somebody who is going to downsize in the same area. So that'd be it. So I guess it's just watch that space to see if, if what sort of buyer is or what sort of seller is is selling. Yeah, and you look at you, you you know, these are spots that I like to look at in terms of listings. And for years I've always looked at places like Orange say, Oh, that's it that's expensive. So so I think for for a lot of these locations, they're they're rather expensive properties against what I was expecting. Um, beautiful properties. Don't get me wrong, but uh, even Bellingen, you know, I look at Bellingen as my, you know, benchmark for a lot of things, and so many properties selling, you know, above one point two million dollars, and it's like, oh, that's kind of reminds me of what the Inner West was ten years ago. So, you know, I I I just wonder how f- far they they've jumped beyond the local market, and whether they're entirely dependent on out of town buyers. Is Bellingen included in the Coffs Harbour? It is in the Coffs Harbour, yes. And there are a few extra properties, and I went up to visit a few days ago, having a scout. Did you? Why did you specifically go up there? Because you're thinking that might be your time to Look, I'm, I'm <laughs> so ready. I'm so ready for a sea or a tree change myself. So there is a bit of motivation behind me doing this. But the main reason was to take my beautiful daughter away from mother, had the father and, and daughter trip. So it was just a couple of days oh, good with my, on you, my Ken. beautiful girl. There you go. And Bello is a beautiful place. Yes. Well, we um, 
We went up to Dorigo and did the rainforest walk, and then we down, oh. went to Yurunga and did the walk on the over the water there. And it was crystal clear, but too windy. Uh, ice cream, we ate ice cream, all that jazz. Very nice. Well, I was down in Hobart, so I was checking out that you know that landscape. <laughs> well, it's a soft market. That's soft. Yes. Yeah, and I think what all this stuff really aligns can uh, to what we're seeing, right? So we see. Um, a lot of those younger families that are living in the city or trying to solve their lifestyle and home ownership dreams, right? Um, and, you know, twenty before 2020, not many wanted to leave the capital cities. Like we talk about Central Coast or, you know, Wollongong or Mornington or Sunshine Coast or Gold Coast. Most of them wouldn't even look at it. They, they talk about it, we'd have a conversation, they would just, very few would go ahead. Obviously, that completely flipped in 2021. 20, then we saw a really wind back in 2022. And then this year, it's almost non-existent, to be honest. Um, the the confidence in people making those big lifestyle moves, um, you know, and, and then those interstate moves, you know, the Sydney person going to Brisbane. Um, I just don't think that's driving the Brisbane market, even though it's recovery. I don't think it's that interstate migration, which was driving it a couple of years ago. Um, and I, we're not really seeing people, particularly if it's, you know, that second, you know, um, two hours away from the city. So someone would much prefer to buy in Sutherland than they would north of Wollongong. Like that that just seems too far, whereas two years ago it didn't seem far at all. Um, the Central Coast as well, a lot of people are saying, oh, I'll buy it there, but I don't want to move up there yet. You know, um, I don't want to do it when I have to, whereas two years ago they're like, I want to do it now because I've got flexibility with work. So, you know, I think this is really starting to play out. And, you know, I think also people don't really want to make those big lifestyle moves where there is a bit of uncertainty, right? Even the older generation, right? So, you know, maybe they go, I'm not sure what I'm going to sell my Sydney place for at the moment because there's a lot of negative news. This all just seems too hard. Let's just stay where we are. Maybe they need real confidence in the market. So, um, but maybe they'll get that. Maybe they'll get that when Sydney prices go up and it's a much more affordability driver. I could downsize, bank a million and um, live a better retirement, and I can put in the interest rate and get a six seven percent return. Um, well, I think the three hundred k gap for super stays a standout for me. You know that that downsizer incentive to say as soon as and the issue I've had is um, if you do that and you're not really banking three hundred to five hundred k and the gap is smaller, there's a disincentive to do it. So when you look at these markets and you know look at Orange and hang on that's one point two one point three million dollars or Bellingen or wherever. Um, if there's not much of a gap, then that's going to be a reason not to do anything. But I, I think as these markets, if these markets start to come off just a little bit further and that gap does get to that 300k plus mark, I think they're going to be rather attractive to the downsizer because you've got choice and you've got, you're pocketing some money. We shall watch this space, but I think it's important as well. I mean, the inventory levels is one thing, but I think a long-term average it would be an interesting thing to compare it to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, rather than because of the recent times, we had so much volatility that it's actually really hard to, you know, everything seems long. Everything seems like a lot of inventory compared to um, to what we've had of recent times. So I guess um, that would, yeah, that's what I'd be looking at. I think it is interesting too that the capital cities just haven't really featured. And I think that that is a really interesting observation. Um it does seem to me, I mean, I know when sort of COVID first hit and that massive tree and tree change was almost immediate. It was almost like this massive untapped desire 
you know, which potentially fantasy. But the other thing I thought of with COVID too, and it happened, and I thought no one's going to want to live in a high rise ever again. No one's going to ever want to get in a lift ever again. We've all got short memories. We're all back to you know what we were doing before. And I think this is this is seems to be the same thing. It's just that we've all gone back to business as usual, and it's amazing how short memories we've got, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that the the pricing here is the the, the hangover that prices peaked. You had very limited supply. Only so many builders that you've got in these locations. So people came in with surplus and pushed prices up and, you know, that they needed maybe come down to a, a, a more natural equilibrium that aligns with local budgets. Yeah. And so how would we work out what that could be? I mean, you know what I mean? Is there is there a, a way, do you think, to calculate that? Well, you'd have to make a few big assumptions, but one of those assumptions is that I could peg it to local household income. Um, so, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd apportion the market and say, okay, there's going to be a proportion of out-of-town buyers and secondary buyers that can afford 15-year-plus household income, different market. But, then, you know, you probably need to kind of split it up and say a certain percentage of the market, maybe do it in quintiles, whatever, um, but... You can't dismiss local household income. That's my opinion. You know, the big part of these models. And you detach yourself from that, you're totally dependent or heavily dependent on the out-of-town money. And that out-of-town flow has has fallen away. It's not going to disappear, though. And I think you also potentially open up a risk, right? So if, if it's a high multiple, very high multiple of local incomes, then their wealth is a lot tired. The people who own property in that area will go, well, my income's really low, but my property's worth a lot. And it's tempting in those situations to take your money and run. And so I reckon that's also happening in these locations as well, where, you know, like a place like Kayama, right? They wouldn't have thought their house was worth 1.8 million and it was worth a million dollars, you know, two years ago. Well, do we just bank and take our money and run because our income's a hundred grand a year and that's would set us up for retirement. And so maybe that's happening as well right now where, um, you know, and they're maybe getting cost of living pressure and, you know, higher, higher interest rates. Well, yeah, I could hold on, but I'm just better off to bank it and buy something cheaper. Um, so maybe that's starting to play. Whereas, you know, maybe people in the city don't have that ability because there's nothing to they can trade down to. Or... Well, it's interesting. A lot, a lot of locals have, have multiple properties, so they could, could have cashed in. You know, a lot of them can cash in. Um, yeah, there are a lot of people here in Newcastle that have been around for you know, 30, 40 years buying houses cheaply. You know? So there's a whole stack of people you know, on this street alone that own three or four properties, all because they bought them for under 100K. Yeah. And so they might be opportunistic perhaps, or they might, they might be the people that never sell. But I think the problem is the theory that you've got there, Chris, if people are thinking, okay, well, I've sat on this property for so many years and- Now's the time to get out because you know we've we're, we're over the hill, we're over the peak. Um, they also may well take their property off the market if they're not going to get that that's result true. as well. That's so true. it's sort of that's where it comes back to who's selling and why. And so I guess we'll watch this space. We need to probably review it in three months and see whether it's continued on this path. Yes, I think it's a, that would be a good move, and we can. Track prices. I think the other, the metric that I wanted to bring today, and I didn't. Sorry, um, I wanted to look at their peak. So, go back a few years and, and look at the peak. You know, peak to current. 
and see how far. So yes, we've seen you know twelve month price changes, but what what's what's it dropped post peak? Uh, and the, you know the peak a lot of a lot of these markets peaked back in around twenty twenty. And if you can, can I guess get what Veronica was saying? You know, long term sales history, right? Is there any way to find out what's the average over maybe not just the last two or three or four years, maybe over the last ten years of the number of sales on average um, of houses in that, and you know how. You know, what's, and then, then we can basically get a real good understanding of inventory, right? Because not only over the short term, inventory looks pretty average, but uh, over the longer term, it also looks average. So, well, yeah, the, and the norm's always been four, four months, four to five months has been equilibrium. Yeah. Yeah. The norm. Yeah. But that, that, because you've always said that, you know, that five months is a, is a tipping point in terms of inventory. Um, but that's aggregated for the whole country, right? I would think that that's longer in like a normal market conditions are longer in or more inventory in some places and less in others. Would that be fair to say? Oh, uh, look, I, I think by and large, um, I think four four months is a pretty good measure, irrespective, no matter whether it be a unit or a house or regional or whatever. Days of market be different, you know, because a lot of these regional rural areas do take an extra 30, 50 days to sell because they're unique. But inventory inventory is pretty good. I think it's a pretty solid metric where that's why I like it because you can roll different areas together and aggregate different suburbs. So, you know, Richmond Valley Coastal, as an example, you got the really expensive $2 million plus suburbs, plus you've got a few that are sub 600. You can roll them all together and, and have a pretty robust inventory measure. Mm, yeah. Well, it's what I love these conversations, Ken, because we don't just sort of take it on the on the, the surface of it. We love to interrogate it and dig and prod and probe. <laughs> I know sometimes you think, shit, you know. <laughs> well, I, I'd love to know the motivation. I'd love, yeah, wouldn't it be great to just hit a button and know who's selling and why and who's buying and why in these and why? areas? I know. Imagine if we get that info. Yes. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Well, you're going to come up with some other. Well, we we shall talk about uh, offline. We'll talk offline in terms of what we're going to come up with in our next suburb trends episode. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this one, and this these are the areas to watch, I guess. And if you've been thinking about sea or tree change, and these are on your radar, then keep an eye out. Maybe there's going to be some good buying coming up if these numbers, if these indicators are, are pointing in the right direction. Thanks so much, Ken. Talk soon. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.